millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show... Eleanor Catton on her long-awaited new novel, Burnham Wood. Eleanor Catton is the author of The Luminaries, winner of the Man Booker Prize and the Governor General's Literary Award, and an international bestseller. Her debut novel, The Rehearsal, won a Betty Trask Award, was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award, and the Dylan Thomas Prize, and long-listed for the Orange Prize. As a screenwriter, she adapted The Luminaries for television and Jane Austen's Emma for feature film. And today we're going to be talking about Eleanor's latest novel, which is Burnham Wood. Eleanor, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell us how you would describe the novel. Uh, I've been describing it as a character-driven thriller where nobody in the book thinks that they're the bad guy. It's been... 10 years since your last novel, The Luminary, is obviously the one that won the booker. Um, so why is it taken this long for this one to appear? Well, a, a number of things, really. I mean, part of the great privilege of, of the Booker Prize was that it meant that I had time to to really wait for a good idea to come along. <laughs> and so it wasn't really until about 2016 that I that I really started thinking about the ideas that would eventually become this book. And might have kind of gotten around to it a little quicker, but it so happened that a couple of my screenwriting projects were greenlit in quite quick succession. So I, it took me a few years to come back to writing the novel. But, you know, I, I believe in taking time about things and, and, and not rushing it if you possibly can. And obviously something that's happened in the intervening 10 years was the, um, was the pandemic. And you grew up in New Zealand, but were here during that time. And obviously New Zealand was one of those places that had incredibly stringent requirements, entry requirements during that time. So, so what was it like being away during the pandemic? It was very peculiar, actually. It was a, it was a strange time. You know, um, of course, nobody knew how long the borders were going to be closed. And like like many New Zealanders who were overseas at that time, I was only here on the you know by the grace of the Home Office. Um, and the the idea of being prevented from going home to your homeland, you know, kind of no no matter what the circumstance, if one of my parents had died or if something had happened, kind of anywhere in the world that would have changed my relationship to how how I was managing the the risk of the pandemic. The idea of that not being a free choice that I could have made is 
it was very strange. I think I think it it really profoundly changed my relationship to New Zealand. Actually, I felt I felt very excluded by that decision that the government had made, which I, I did think was a brave decision at the at the beginning of the pandemic. But then, as the border closure wore on, you know, it was the borders were closed to New Zealand citizens for two, like two years, which is quite a long time, really. It's quite a big proportion of people's lives. Um, it was the entire proportion of my daughter's life who was born during the pandemic and then didn't get to meet anybody in, in my family until she was over two years old. It was peculiar. And I think that for me, writing Burnham Wood um, at the time, which is a book that's very much written in a satirical vein, it had the effect for me, I think, of of kind of sharpening the satire of the book. I was feeling the exclusion in, in, a, in a very personal way and um, feeling quite keenly how easily my kind of fundamental rights as a citizen could be taken away. Again, I'm not kind of speaking about the early days of the pandemic, but it was, it was more the later days of the pandemic when freedom of movement was allowed elsewhere in the world and, and people were kind of managing the virus and the kind of vaccination programs elsewhere in the world with a greater degree of freedom than, than was allowed in New Zealand. It was a funny. It was a funny old time, I guess. <laughs> it's also ironic that this was all under the um, the auspices of a, of a more leftist government, because the novel is set in 2017, before all of this happens, after a period of time where New Zealand has a much more neoliberal government. Um, so tell us why 2017. Well, I think that in a way, I mean, New Zealand still has a very neoliberal government. I don't really think that all that much has changed with the change of power. Jacinda Ardern, for all of her um, her elegance and the inspirational qualities she has as a leader, was really unable to shift the needle very much in terms of the economic priorities of the country, I think. The fact that New Zealand doesn't have a capital gains tax at all, which just makes it very unusual among developed nations, was something that not only did she not change, but she also vowed never to change such was the the kind of the devotion to this this policy within the country among the kind of the propertyed class in the country when she came to power i mean i i should say i i, I voted for her i i feel critical of some some aspects of her leadership but i i voted for her and and was very sorry to see her go i would have voted for her again when she came to power in late 2017 she introduced a number of new laws that would limit the ways in which foreign people or entities could buy and own New Zealand property. And because I had already started writing the book by then and, and kind of knew that I wanted to satirize this phenomenon of, of the ultra-wealthy coming to New Zealand and buying up plots of land for kind of survivalist and prepping kind of purposes, I decided at that time to backdate the novel to kind of mid-2017, so essentially right before she came to power in the twilight of the of the center right government that had just preceded hers but you know it was it was a practical decision more than anything else and it, it's probably one that I would have made anyway once the pandemic hit just because that threw such a question mark over the idea of of a plotted novel in general you mentioned that the novel is one in which none of the characters believe that they are the bad guy the title Burnham Wood suggests that this is an allusion to Macbeth, and it would be easy to believe, as these things are very fashionable now, that this was going to be a modern reworking 
of Macbeth, but it uses Macbeth in a much more interesting way than that. Um, so tell us to what extent Macbeth is the sort of scaffolding for the novel. When I first started thinking about the book, I had gone back to Macbeth actually just as a really out of curiosity to see whether the play had anything um, to say that might speak to the current political moment. This was in 2016, around the time of, of course, um, Donald Trump's election and uh, the Brexit vote. And I was noticing, I mean, as as kind of everyone was at that time, I was noticing that in the people around me, among the people around me, there was a lot of blaming going on, a, a lot of self-exculpating going on, um, a kind of a new rise in conspiracist kind of thinking um, in, 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 in kind of a you know, an alarming and, and, and interesting way. And I suddenly had the idea that I could try and design a novel in such a way that each one of the characters could be a plausible contender for the role of Macbeth. So if you read the book, kind of casting around for a bad guy, as, as we often do whenever we open up our news apps or I kind of turn on the TV news, if you wanted to find a bad guy, no matter what your political persuasion, you could make the case that any one of the characters in the book was the Macbeth of, of the novel. And I suppose I was I was interested in how we tend to use Macbeth as a kind of a cultural touchstone these days. I think it's he's a character who is quite often identified with political enemies. We often say, you know, that, you know, he's like Macbeth if if, if somebody kind of displays a lot of um ruthless ambition or um bloody mindedness. We often diagnose Lady Macbeth characters in, in the kind of the wives and spouses of our, our political enemies. But it occurred to me that Macbeth is a character that you very rarely hear people self-identifying with in the way that you you often do with Shakespeare's other tragic protagonists. Um, you hear people talking about Othello and talking about King Lear and Hamlet as though they really kind of understand and identify with what that character is going through. But Macbeth is this slight oddity in, in that we tend to use Macbeth as a way of diagnosing other people rather than of diagnosing ourselves. And I think, I mean, to some extent, that's just that it's a function of the fact that Macbeth is a play about blindness and a, about being blindsided by by a certainty that you thought that you held that, of course, turns out not to be a certainty at all, such as the certainty that forests don't move. And, and of course, it's, it, it is hard to identify with blindness because we, by definition, we don't, we don't know what our own blindnesses are. But I got, I got quite interested in, in how much we seem to depend these days on, on uh, vilifying our political enemies. And, you know, ev- even often while we're decrying how polarized we've all become politically, there is often a, um, at the same time as we're saying, you know, we're also hopelessly polarized. It doesn't really seem as though anybody is following that up by saying, and I'm the person who needs to change in this situation. It seems as though there's a lot of um, expectation that the people who believe other than us are the ones who have the, the kind of the burden of change or the responsibility of change. And so I became quite interested in that, I suppose, just from a technical point of view. Um, because I think that a novel at its heart, if it is a plotted novel, and a novel that takes plot seriously and, and that moves characters through time and space into a kind of a new version of themselves rather than just presenting them statically, a novel has a kind of a faith in change and has a 
has a sort of a belief in the good that is inescapably bound up with that change, whether it's a change away from the good or a change towards it. And so I, I wanted to use Macbeth as a kind of a, a jumping off point, but I really didn't want to create a kind of a Ramana Clay kind of um, um, reading experience where the reader of my book was always being sent back to Macbeth to check who matched up to who. You know, I, I find those kinds of reading experiences sometimes a little a little boring, to be honest. So I, di- I, I didn't want to go in that direction, but I wanted to present to the reader this quite confronting and challenging idea that maybe the bad guy is you. Maybe you are the person <laughs> in this political situation who is, by refusing to change, who is who's kind of perpetuating what is going on here. There's a number of main characters that we could talk about, Mira, Shelley, Tony, but they are all part of a political collective, Burnham Wood of the of the title. Um, so I'm going to ask you, instead of talking about those individually, let's talk about the collective, what the point of it is, what it does, and is that inspired by any real-life organisation, where that idea came from? I, I suppose it partly is. So the, so the idea for the Burnham Wood of the title is that it's, a, it's an organisation in the South Island of New Zealand, a left-wing organisation, that goes around neglected spaces and plants sustainable gardens sometimes asking for permission, sometimes trespassing and and even kind of engaging in um, what amounts to vandalism and theft, occasionally approaching people to see if they'll be willing to give up their gardens in exchange for um, some of the harvest at the end of the growing season. It's not really based on anything in particular. I know that guerrilla gardening groups of this kind do exist around the world and that especially among my generation, I think that there's there's a lot of interest in alternative um, economic structures that put provision and welfare at, at the kind of the front and center of what they do. There's a lot there's a lot of interest in the sharing economy. I think, especially among younger people. After the Christchurch earthquakes in 2011, there was an organisation that was founded that was called Gap Filler, and I was I was quite inspired by a lot of the things that they did. They used the empty spaces where buildings had once stood and um, created community initiatives just to bring a little bit of life and color back into this central city that had been raised, you know, demolished to, to the large part. So I was, I was interested in how they, how, how they had gone about their, their business, I suppose, but um, they weren't really a direct influence, just more of a, a, a kind of a passing interest. <laughs> With Burnham Wood as an organization, when the book begins, they have reached a kind of an impasse as a organization that has been founded on quite strongly anti-capitalist principles where on the one hand you have a kind of a faction of the group that would really like to start making a bit of money to kind of increase their influence and their clout and start paying taxes start um, maybe in, incorporate as a business or or register as a charity or become official in some in some capacity in order to be able to have a a plan of sustainability moving forward. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got a faction that wants to stay true to the anti-capitalist principles on which the group was founded. And so to stay radical, to stay disruptive, to stay kind of criminal in, in a lot of senses. Um, and when the book begins, that uh, more anti-capitalist faction has dwindled. So by the time Tony, one of the characters, returns at the beginning of the book from a few years overseas living in Mexico, he is disappointed to discover 
that the the group has kind of drifted to the center effectively and is and is now contemplating possibly selling out as he would see it hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Eleanor Catton and we're talking about her new novel, Burnham Wood. And Eleanor, before we broke, you just mentioned about, you were talking about the, the political philosophy of, of the group Burnham Wood. And you mentioned that people of your generation are interested at the moment in the sharing economy, et cetera. And, and this novel deals with an issue that Millennials worldwide will be familiar with, whether in the UK, you know, New Zealand or, you know, the US, of being priced out of what would have been expected to be a normal life, whether that's, you know, mm -hmm. student fees, property prices, things like that. Tell us something about how that phenomenon played out in New Zealand. Well, I think it's it's probably much like elsewhere in the world. As I mentioned, New Zealand has no capital gains tax at all. And has a tax system that's very much rigged in favour of those who have wealth already. The the top tax rate in New Zealand is really quite shockingly low. It's almost a, it's a full ten percentage points below the United Kingdom, for example, and was much even lower um, and, until the most recent government. And so it's a country that is economically, you know, it was it was called in the late eighties and early nineties the economic wild west for how. Kind of radical, actually. Some of the the free market proposals were in New Zealand, and kind of obviously following on from that, or flowing on from that, it's a country that where it is a great disadvantage to be young. That really bothers me. <laughs> it's not just as a relatively young person. I'm not even relatively young. I'm at an age where anybody of my parents' generation, the baby boomer generation, would have called midlife. You know, would be well into 
their career of home, home ownership would their university years would be well behind them. They would be citizens of their country, of the world. They would be stakeholders in the society that they were shaping. You know, in a, in, in a way that it just is not true of anybody around me uh, who, who's my age. But I also kind of more broadly feel that it's this is a very dangerous situation to be in because when the keys to power are held in a society by people whose primary interest is just to protect their assets, you end up with a kind of a sclerotic, fearful, deeply polarized, deeply unequal society where everything that is wonderful about young people is just not being respected or harnessed or kind of made or, or given the opportunity to flourish, you know. All of the creativity of young people and the energy and the idealism is is being not only um, kind of wasted, but it's actually being destroyed because um, these young people are looking around and feeling appalled and dismayed at how their inheritance is being just kind of quite literally flushed down the toilet or just barred, you know, from them. You know, it's it has been stolen, and it is <laughs> it's uh, harder and harder to feel as though a kind of redistribution will ever take place along generational lines. And so, I feel I feel very passionately about all of this. At the same time, I I don't think that it's the case of you know I I don't think it's a it's a black and white scenario. I don't think it's a case of one social class very cleanly preying upon another. When I look around people my age, I also see this incredible dependence on devices, you know, on, on social media environments that we're just kind of hopelessly addicted to um, the devices that are where we live. You know, we, we live online. We live in these kind of unreal spaces far more, it's, it seems, than we often live in, in the real world. And that, too, comes with an economic cost. It's an economic cost that is largely unknown to us, um, the users of our devices. But it's, it's something that we need to think about when we're, you know, we, we need to factor those, those things into the equation when we're getting on the high horse about how, how hard done by we've been as a, as, as, as a generation. So I guess, I guess my broad ambitions with the book was to, to show a kind of an intergenerational drama. I, I hadn't really seen that before, to show the reality of how this intergenerational injustice plays out, you know, maybe especially in New Zealand or using New Zealand as an example. If you look at the characters in the book, they sort of divide into three generational camps. There's a baby boomer couple, the Darvishes, who are property rich, um, largely just by virtue of where and when they were born, and are looking to subdivide the farm that they have inherited in order to just um, increase their already considerable wealth. Uh, there's a Gen X billionaire, uh, tech billionaire from the United States who's come in to um, purchase that land. And then there are the millennial activists who are also obsessed with this piece of land, though in a different way for a different purpose. But they're not exempt from that obsession, you know, this national obsession in New Zealand, which is, which is with property and how it can be put to profit. That um, Gen X American billionaire that you mentioned, Robert Lemoyne, he's ostensibly, and we're not going to give away anything about the plot, but he's ostensibly interested in this piece of land because he wants to build a bunker, basically, to sit out the end of the world. He's part of this um, doomsteader or, you know, doom prepping movement. And that is a, you know, that's a thing that, you know, New Zealand has been 
literally sort of targeted for by by billionaires buying up huge tracts of land for that purpose. Um, before I I get you to to read us a bit of the novel, tell us something about this phenomenon. Uh, so this has been going on for I I actually don't know how long. Well, probably a, a couple of decades um, at least. Um, New Zealand has been very very hospitable to foreign wealth, and it is no secret that many of the world's ultra wealthy are buying up tracts of land in New Zealand. Obviously, it's a it's a nuclear free, famously nuclear free country. It's a it's a country that is remote. It's an island. It's um, a few islands. It's remote from the great power centers of the world. And I think many of the world's ultra rich are viewing are viewing it as a good insurance policy against a future climate crisis led catastrophe or possibly world war or or maybe any number of scenarios where um, should the unthinkable happen, they can all hop on their private jets and and come to New Zealand and and kind of ride out the disaster. And so the the fact that New Zealand has been so hospitable to these people comes in the context of a housing crisis in the country. You know, their population density in New Zealand is not great. There is a lot of space there, but um, not enough housing for um, people, particularly young people. And yet again, you see these injustices um, play out along generational lines, um, along racial lines where people are being squeezed out of, New Zealand citizens are being squeezed out of just having a place to live. Something as basic as um, having a roof over your head is beyond the capability of of many citizens in the country. And so I feel that this is a deeply troublesome situation and that that actually a, a nation does have a responsibility to do a little better for its citizens and that this kind of great gulf that you're seeing between the rich and the poor is is a it's a terrible situation that just simply doesn't have to be that way you know i remember reading a quote by i think it was william gibson um about the uh, apocalypse where he's he he said something like you know we we've all imagined a zombie scenario this kind of apocalypse scenario where we're looking around and there are we're kind of rummaging around in demolished buildings and and it's kind of the end of the world as we know it and we think okay you know maybe i could I could stomach that. It would be it would be extreme, but I could stomach it. But he said, um, that's not going to be the scenario. The scenario is going to be that you'll be in this kind of zombified state, and then you'll look up into the sky and you'll see a jet streaking across the sky. That will be the end of the world, you know. <laughs> and um I feel I feel very ashamed that New Zealand is playing its part to accelerate that future scenario. So to finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? So I'm just going to read a a section from the beginning of the book. Mira, one of the members of Burnham Wood, has gone down to a part of New Zealand that has been abandoned following a landslide. And um, while she's down trespassing on this farm, she encounters um, somebody we will later learn as the billionaire Robert Lemoyne. So this is their first meeting. The open fields beside the road were too exposed to be of any interest, and so she headed back up the hill again to take a closer look at the plain. It was now well afternoon. Driving south, she had gained a few degrees of latitude. Sunset would be early, especially in the valley where the light would fade rapidly once the sun had sunk behind the ranges in the west. After she had explored the upper paddock, she told herself, she would return to the campsite and fill the water tanks at the lake. Then, after nightfall, she would drive the van up the service road and unload the contents over the fence, ready to begin preparing the site in earnest the following day. She was just forming this resolution in her mind 
when she returned to the airstrip and a man stepped out from behind the plane. He was in his forties, lean, smooth-faced, and wearing a navy tracksuit and an unbranded baseball cap. His clothes looked new, and in the split second before either of them spoke, Mira found herself recalling bizarrely a comment by her cousin Eve, who was the mother of two small children, and who had once remarked despairingly to Mira that when it came to children's clothing you had to spend a lot of money to look like you were hardly spending anything at all. This man's tracksuit was so ordinary and unassuming and so simply cut that Mira felt absolutely certain it was more expensive than any garment she had ever owned. Her heart was thumping, but she knew that the best strategy in these moments was to pretend that she had every right to be exactly where she was. So she smiled and waved as he approached, striding forward confidently to meet him halfway. Another beautiful day, she said warmly, spreading her arms wide. He didn't return her smile. Who are you, he said, when he was close enough to speak without raising his voice. He had an American accent. Sarah Foster, Mira said, choosing one of her false identities. With the production, is that your plane? He didn't answer. You're trespassing, he said. Well, that's kind of my job, Mira said with a little laugh. I'm a location scout. Any house with a view of a lake is my brief. Been all around the country and haven't found it yet, but that's the nature of the beast. Is that your plane? What do you think, he said. I think it's a pretty nice plane, Mira said, laughing again. Must be magic once you're up above it all. It'd make my job a little easier, one of those. He didn't smile. He was staring at her, unblinking, his expression cold. Then he said very quietly, Who do you work for? She frowned, pretending consternation. My producer was in touch last month, she said. Ben Sharp? He said he cleared it with the farmer. Someone named Darvish, I think it was. Cleared what? The man said. Well, we're just taking photos at this stage, Mira said. No promises, but, of course, with the landslide on the pass, no traffic, nobody around, what better time to make a movie? A movie, he repeated. That's right, Mira said. I can't tell you what it is, unfortunately. Non-disclosure, all of that, but it's an international production, quite big, and there are a few names attached already. I'm excited. And God knows the economy around here could use the boost. What about you? Are you visiting? He didn't answer. I thought I heard an American accent, Mira said. She was cursing her choice of cover story. Ordinarily, she could trust that the allure of Hollywood would dazzle whomever she was speaking to, but he didn't seem dazzled in the slightest. He didn't even seem curious. She hoped he wasn't from the movie industry himself. Say your name again, he said. Sarah, Mira said. Foster, what's yours? He said nothing. He was studying her face. Mira was starting to sweat. She kept her voice light. Well, anyway, the house I'm supposed to be looking for is supposed to be English, she said, turning away from him to gesture out over the hillside. Somewhere in the Lake District, but you know, it's Hollywood, so close enough. We're hoping to start shooting in the summer. How did you know I was here, he said. I didn't, Mira said. I have no idea who you are. I mean, no offense. I'm sure you're really important if you've got your own plane. Again, he said nothing. He raised his eyebrows a little, making it clear he didn't believe her, and waited. She smiled bravely and lifted up her camera. Only taking photos, she said, I swear. You've been on this property four hours and you haven't taken out your camera once, he said. Mira's smile faltered in a way that was partly performed and partly real. Look, she said, honestly, my producer cleared this with the farmer weeks ago. Feel free to ring him up if you don't believe me. Owen Darvish is the farmer's name. You're lying, he said. Mira tried to laugh. I don't know what to tell you then. There is no production, said the man. And your name's not Sarah Foster. So I've been talking to Eleanor Catton. We've been talking about her new novel, Burnham Wood. 
which is at in the UK from Granta. Eleanor, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.